0: Amen. Thank you for giving this morning. So the kids are going to be with us. So I'm going to see how good the kids really behave. So, uh, th- and this is a hard, a hard uh, the book we're going to look at today. We've been looking at this idea of prophet reboot. And we're looking at a section of the, of the Bible's Old Testament that most people uh, don't look at too often. Uh, if you remember, um, Jesus, when he talked about the Bible in his day, he talked about the law and the prophets and the writings. You see that a couple of times in the ministry of Jesus, and we scratch our heads. We say, well, what in the world is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the way that the Bible was divided back in his day. Um, and you had the law, and they called that the Torah, and you had the prophets, and, uh, with the, which they called the Nevi'im, and the writings of the Psalms. And when you put those Hebrew words together, you get the word Tanakh. And this is what the the Jews read from. This is what they read from. This is what they read from today. And there's this little section in the part of the prophets that most of us, we don't go there too often. We can't even pronounce these people's names. Uh, And they have some incredible things to say, even though they're a small amount of people and their writings are small. We call them the minor prophets. If you are new to the Bible... And you you know it's hard for you to read the you know big chunks of the Bible, and you want to do something in the Old Testament, the minor prophets are actually a good place to read, because you can read one of these books in ten minutes, fifteen minutes. And if you know the kind of broad idea, then you can really get something out of the book, all right? So uh, these are the names of the minor prophets, Hosea. And we're going we're gonna to talk about Hosea next week. His, his wife was a rather interesting choice. All right. We're going to look at Hosea. Joel, we already, we already covered. Uh, Amos is another one. Obadiah. Any of you read Obadiah recently? Did you know that was a book in the Bible? Obadiah. Uh, Jonah. We covered Jonah. Micah. We have a Micah in our church. I don't think he's here yet, but we have a Micah. Nahum. That's an interesting name. Habakkuk, we covered Habakkuk. I'm waiting for parents to name their child Habakkuk. Uh, we'll dedicate a Habakkuk. That would be nice. it would be an interesting name. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are the 12 minor prophets. Now, what's interesting is that the, the order that the Jews read these books in, uh, even though they're in a different section than the way we read it today, it was the same order. So Malachi was last on the list and Hosea uh, was first on the list. And we're going to cover Malachi today, all right? You can, if you have a paper Bible or a, or a smartphone with the Bible on it, you can try and find Malachi there. He's the last one before Matthew. So if you can get to Matthew, you're in the right zone. Just turn left one page uh, or swipe, swipe right. And you'll get, to, you'll get to Malachi, all right? Um, just a word about prophets. And I keep saying this over and over again because it just, it's evident today that it needs to be said. Um, prophets back in the time of the Bible uh, were not the same as the way we think of prophets today, unfortunately. Many times today we have a view of prophets and prophecy that's gone a bit astray so we think of prophets as almost like fortune tellers or crystal ball readers and usually when in especially in north america when we hear that there's a prophet uh, around you know at some church or whatever we all run to the we all run to the prophet we all run to the church to see what does what will the prophet say What will the prophet do? You know, maybe he or she will wave their little hand over me and tell me my whole life story and tell me my future and tell me I'm going to win the 649 or meet a nice girl or a nice boy or whatever. And so we're looking for that exciting sort of sensational moment with the supernatural. Uh, And this is not the way that prophets worked in the Bible. Uh, The the call of, of the prophet was a very hard call. Uh, often these men were very mm, humbled by the fact that God would call them. They, they uh, were reluctant to do what God wanted them to do. Uh, we see Isaiah, for example, say, you know, woe to me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst an unclean people. Uh, go find somebody else uh, because what they would do is twofold. They would, they would forth tell. And they would foretell. We like the foretelling part, but that's a minor, uh, small area of what they did. Most of the time, they did what you call foretelling. And what they did was they reminded the people, uh, in that context, the Jewish people, of what they were supposed to do. And they said, you guys, you're, you're off the mark again. You're not doing what God told you to do. You're following this and this other God. You're living this and this other way. And uh, God wants to tell you that you need to change the way that you're doing things. And that's this kind of idea of speaking the mind of God to the people. And predominantly, this is what they did. And sometimes they would go into the foretelling mode. And they would say, because of such and such, because usually it was some kind of bad circumstance, some kind of sin, this is what is now going to happen. Uh, This is what the future holds for you as a person, a king, a nation. This is what the future holds because you've been living this way. So they weren't liked most of the time. Most of the time they were feared or disliked. We see prophets persecuted in the Bible. It was not the same as it is today where there's this kind of sensationalized idea to it. Uh, It was a difficult thing, and prophets um, challenged people. They edified people, but not by making them feel good all the time. All right, so you've got to understand that when you look into the pages of the Bible. And today we've got a great example of it. This is Malachi, and I call him the prophet who speaks who speaks the mind of God. So you want to hear what God has to say? You want God to give His opinion? Uh, you want God to speak his mind, well, you read a book like Malachi, okay? And God is going to give us in very clear terms uh, his opinion and his view on a number of things that were going on in uh, in Israel at the time. And uh, so if you really want to know what God... What, what God's opinion is, you read a book like Malachi. To review, just to give you some background and some context, and we do this every time so that you know where we are, you've got Israel as a nation divided uh, in, in 922 BC before Jesus was born. You have a civil war that takes place in the nation. You have 10 tribes to the north. You have two to the south. Uh, we know that uh, Joel, who we covered last week, remember the locusts eating everything, Well, Joel, he prophesied sometime after this split. We're not exactly sure when, but that's when he did. It's a major, major crisis, major event in in the nation, all right? We know a couple of hundred years later, the Assyrians, a vicious, vicious uh, military force, powerful, powerful army would come and they would conquer Israel to the north, those 10 tribes in 722, all right? We know that this happened and this is after uh, Nineveh, their capital city, repented under the preaching of Jonah. If you remember, we covered Jonah first, you know, Jonah and the whale, okay? Kids, are you with me so far? All right, okay, you stay with me. And then uh, we know that a couple of hundred years later, or not a couple hundred, but a hundred and change. Uh, Next major thing, the Babylonians, after they had conquered the Assyrians, they come and they take Jerusalem to the south. So you've got the north taken out by the Assyrians. You've got the south in Jerusalem and Judah uh, taken by the Babylonians in three attacks from 605 to 586. Habakkuk, who we covered, he wrote just before this invasion, All right, if you're still with me, Uh, then we know that the Medo Persians, uh, you know, pardon the history lesson, but this will help you very much. They came into. Uh, conquer the Babylonians in 539 is what we read in the book of Daniel, okay? We see the handwriting on the wall and it's, and it's over for Nebuchadnezzar there and the, the Medo-Persians come in, they take the people uh, to, to Babylon. Uh, we know about Daniel and his, his, his friends, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, those guys, well, those are all the people who were carted off to Babylon. We know that the Persian king Cyrus would bring them back to Jerusalem in 538. All of this stuff we reviewed for the last the uh, last three four weeks. Okay, something that we haven't looked at, which we're going to look at today, is after Cyrus brought these people back uh, to Jerusalem, they start rebuilding. So the first thing that they rebuild is their temple, which the Babylonians had sacked and burned in in, uh, 586. And you see a picture on the screen there of Ezra or whatever Ezra looked like. And that's kind of a rededication of the newly built temple. It's a big, big deal, a big thing that they got their temple back. And you can read the book of Ezra, and you can read the whole rededication of the temple, and all of the stuff that's going on in Ezra's time. He was a scribe, which means he copied portions of the Bible. Uh, but you, you you begin to see when you read Ezra that the people had kind of an expectation. There's Micah. That's a that's just so you know that's Micah. Uh, the the, um, the people had an expectation that okay we've got the temple, so now we're gonna you know the messiah is going to come and we're going to overthrow all the powers around and finally you know the end is coming and because we've got our temple back and that's not exactly what happened and then you see a little later uh, Nehemiah would rebuild the walls of the city so first the temple then the walls And you read Ezra and you read Nehemiah and you start to see that there's something going on in in the people's lives there in Judah and in Jerusalem. We're talking the southern area of Israel there where there's like this lethargy and this malaise in the people because they're expecting God to come in force And in power and his Messiah to come and overthrow the kingdoms and the enemies of Israel. And it's not what happens. And you start to see this, even with the temple rebuilt, this spiritual lethargy and this kind of malaise and this indifference in the people. And the way that they're living, they're starting to do some things that show that. Enter Malachi. Malachi. Uh, We don't know much about him. He just poof, he pops onto the scene. The last of the prophets in the Old Testament. His name we know means my messenger. That's easy. There are a few clues in the book that help us understand that he's writing late. He's writing around 4.30 uh, before Jesus is born. So we know that the temple's rebuilt. We know the walls are rebuilt. And there's certain clues there where we can see, all right, he's referring to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah here. This is the time that he's writing, and he's going to address this lethargy, this malaise in the people, and he's going to give us the opinion of God. You say, man, I don't care. That's 2,500 years ago. It's got nothing to do with my life. Well, wait till you see the things that God speaks about and the opinion and the mind of the people. And you'll see, you'll find yourself uh, somewhere in these, in these uh, oracles. So when God speaks his mind through these prophets, we call this an oracle. It's just a fancy word for a collection of sayings when God is speaking his mind here. And he's going to address a number of criticisms in like in rapid fire succession. You read them in the book of Malachi, which is only four chapters long. You can read it in about 15 minutes. First criticism that the people have is in Malachi chapter one, verse two. God, how have you loved us? God, do you really love us? How have you loved us is the complaint that they have. And you see right at the beginning uh, in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you asked, how have you loved us? And his answer is, don't you remember that between uh, Jacob and Esau, I chose Jacob. This goes back to the book of Genesis. And we know by reading the, the rest of the Old Testament that the descendants of Jacob would be Israel and the descendants of Esau would be Edom. And the Edomites were a fierce, fierce enemy of Israel. And so he's saying, don't you remember that by grace I chose you? I did not choose Esau. Don't you remember that? And he's reminding them, don't you remember that I love you? And this is something that we struggle with even today. Even people today, Christians today, struggle with that question. How do I know that God really, really loves me? And we got to remind ourselves, do you understand what grace is? Grace is that thing that Jesus came and Jesus died for you while you were a sinner, while you were an enemy of God. Uh, He came and He took your place on that cross. That's a gift that God gives to each person. Uh, It's a gift that He gives us the choice to unwrap. Uh, But it's a gift that He gives. And He does so without merit. He does so based on the work that He did, not on the work that you do uh, our our decision is, well, what are we going to do with that gift? Are we going to unwrap it, or are we going to say no thanks? And that's on us. But the question of whether or not God loves us is ultimately settled by the cross. And that's something that you can't take away. Never, never forget about God's love for you is the lesson there. And they, he, he just continues. It's almost like a rant. Uh, verse 6, uh, the people say, God how have we shown you contempt? Because God says, You show contempt for me. Verse 6 A son honors his father, and a servant his master, or at least they're supposed to. And if I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? He says. Uh, it, is, it is you, O priests, speaking to the priesthood, who show contempt for my name. And they ask, well, how have we shown contempt uh, for your name? And, and God goes in this explanation that these priests were offering uh, sort of grade B sacrifices. Okay, back then you have a very different time. You have a system where they're sacrificing animals as offerings to God. I know that that bothers the animal rights activists today, uh, but that's the way that it was back then, Um, and that's the way that they atoned for sin uh, temporarily, is that something would have to die, and so they would have this whole system where they would pick these animals, and those animals would be slain for the temporary forgiveness of the people. And what he's doing is he's telling these priests, you know, you know, you're what you're doing with those offerings is you're giving, you're giving B sacrifices. You've got animals that you're supposed to sacrifice that are completely healthy and completely whole. And what are you doing? You're giving the grade B ones over here and you're probably eating the other ones yourselves. Uh, So you're giving me second best and you're showing contempt for me because this is a system that's here and you're abusing that. It's very different time, very different system. It's not like today, but the point of God saying, hey, you're cheating in the way that you're supposed to be doing this, and you know who you're cheating? You're cheating me. And he has an issue with the priesthood, with the clergy of that day. The lesson for us today, we know from the book of Romans, what does it say? You offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is our spiritual act of worship, Paul tells the Romans there. So the idea is, well, how much am I giving God? Am I, am I giving God all of myself? Or am I just giving God a little, you know, my little left toenail? He, he, can, he can have that. But he can't have all of me. Uh, he, he can't do with me what he wants to do with me because I still have the reins of this area of my life, you see. And what God wants is he wants the whole thing. He wants you to completely surrender to him and not give him just the grade B and the easy stuff. He wants all of you. He wants every part of you completely surrendered to him. That's the idea. You offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's not an animal that gets burned up in flames. It's you who steps forward and says, okay, God, I offer you all of myself, you see, and so the lesson, well, what are we really giving God? Because if we're not, well, in a way, we're doing the same thing that they did way back then, uh, you know, 400 years before Jesus was even born. He goes on. Are you still with me? I know a little bit of it's going to be ouch, but it's, it's a good ouch. So then he, he goes on in the rant and he says, uh, God... Or, or he says the people's complaint is, God, how have we violated your covenant? And this is an interesting one in, in chapter 2 uh, and uh, verse, uh, verse 8. You have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. It's a bit mysterious, this covenant with Levi. We look back in the pages of the Bible, and it appears that God claimed the tribe of Levi for himself. And the Levites were supposed to serve in the, in the temple, and it's almost like God made, a, made an arrangement with them. Uh, some of my, my family tell me that I'm descended from the tribe of Levi always laugh at them and say, well, how do you know that? You know, the, the various theories and all that. I don't know if I want to be from that tribe. There's a pretty high, pretty high standard there. But anyways, um, uh, the, he gets upset, God, uh, with these people because he says, again, in verse 8, you, you, you violated uh, this covenant. Uh, verse 7, for example, for, for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge And from his mouth, men should seek instruction because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching, you've caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi. He's very upset. He says, you've shown partiality in matters of the law, and your teaching has caused people to stumble. Uh, James says in the New Testament, Uh, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, he says, because teachers will be judged more strictly. The idea is when you you teach on behalf of God um, and people actually listen to what you say, be careful what you say because you can lead masses of people astray by corrupted teaching and by teaching that's not biblical. And the idea, the lesson for us is stay grounded Friends, stay grounded in the Bible. Don't, don't let it drift away from you as your guide uh, for what's right and what's wrong. I came across a statistic uh, this week um, about the young people because it's back to school week, I guess. And this is from George Barna. George Barna always looking at, you know, what the, what the people are doing with, with relevance to Christianity and God and all that. And so uh, he surveys the uh, teenagers uh, as to what their after-school activities are. Guess what the highest percentage, the highest a- after-school activity was? Pardon me? The homework was very high. Screens, yeah, screens and homework was very high. Very, very high. Guess what some of the lower ones were? So yeah, sports was low. Activity, sports, that kind of thing it was low. I was surprised that it was low. Guess what the lowest activity was? The lowest is Bible devotions, you know, something like that. That's the lowest choice for, for the kids when they come home from school. Last thing at the bottom of the barrel is, you know, is the Bible. So it, just, just to challenge you, like as, as parents, but even if you don't have kids, where's the Bible in your, you know, in your life? Do you, do, you, do you read it ever? Or is it just Sunday, Saturday morning in our case? Okay, well, whatever's on the screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our Bible consumption for the week. Wow, that's scary. If that's your Bible consumption, I better do a good job <laughs> or I'll, I'll, I could be in serious trouble, right? So the idea is, well, no, you need to stay grounded Uh, in the Bible. That shouldn't be the bottom of the barrel for you. That should be be a priority for you, okay? Uh, God continues in in this whole discussion, uh, chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. How, God, how have we broken faith? And this is a hard one. This is a really hard one. He says this, uh, have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why Do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah, the the land there where Jerusalem was, has broken faith, he says. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. Again, it was just rebuilt, this sanctuary, by marrying the daughter of a foreign God. So what he's doing is he's saying... You're marrying people of a different belief system. And by doing that, you're, you're spiritually, you're desecrating the whole thing. Uh, it, it's a very strong rebuke here. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention uh, to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and your wife, the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Oh, wow. So this is where you start dancing on, on difficult ground. What, what God is saying, and again, you have to read the context. Number one, they're intermarrying with people outside of their belief system, which was forbidden uh, uh, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but number two, they, were, they, they had a habit of divorce. And God goes, goes on here and he, he ends by saying, I hate divorce. Be careful. He doesn't say, I hate divorced people. He doesn't say that. He says, I hate divorce. Uh, Some of you in this room, no doubt, have experienced divorce. You hate divorce too. You hate the pain that divorce caused and and the hurt that it caused. Well, God hates it more. He hates it because there's a ripping and a tearing that takes place when divorce happens. It hurts the kids. It hurts both spouses. He hates it because of that. Be careful. He doesn't hate divorced people. It doesn't say that. Uh, but there's, a, there's something going on there in Israel. Number one, they're intermarrying, they're marrying outside the faith. Number two, they're divorcing for, you know, apparently reasons that made no sense. Uh, I'll state it publicly. As far as, as we can see in the scripture, you've got one reason why that can happen, and that's when there's marital unfaithfulness, because that's a tearing that takes place. I've counseled many couples who've experienced it. It's very, very difficult to recover from that kind of thing. Very difficult next to impossible. Happens rarely. Uh, But, you know, in this case, we have no mention of that. Uh, It seems that they had a habit of divorce, perhaps for reasons that were completely unjustified. And God is saying, you know, you've broken faith. Here's just just lessons to learn from this. Uh, Those of you who are single... You know, I know how single people who are, who are Christian think uh, there's, there's this bizarre view, this bizarre pressure that's always put on single Christian people. What's wrong with you? You know, you're 12 years old and you're still not married. You know, <laughs> they, 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 it's like there's this expectation that's so, I, I don't know where it comes from. Uh, And it's just sort of, well, what's wrong with you? Now you're 23, now you're 33, now you're 43. You know, what's wrong with you? You're supposed to be married. You're supposed to be having like grandkids by now already. Uh, Can I just tell you that that's off the wall? Uh, The scripture doesn't justify that kind of idea at all. And then you have single Christian people and they're looking for the one you know, uh, for the guys, you know, the, the girl's got to look like Halle Berry, and, and that's the one, and for the girls, I don't know who the guy has to look like, and it's like, well, no, God has to do this, some kind of fantastic miracle in front of me, and then I'll know that the person's the one, okay? The scripture doesn't justify this at all. Do you know what the scripture says? Just, just really easy advice, marry a believer. You want to know God's will? Marry a believer. Yeah, 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 but she doesn't look like Halle Berry. I don't care. Marry a believer. <laughs> well, but he doesn't look like Tom Cruise, you know. I don't care. My, my, my command is this. You marry a believer. Because if you take a believer and you take a non-believer, what you have is two different worldviews, And you bring those two views together. And, and Paul says it's like light and darkness, so what you have is a marriage of a marriage of shadows that takes place because you got two different faith systems. You got your hand in the air. You want to ask a question? So for a a believer, you a yeah, the, you you can try that route. Uh, we call that missionary dating, um, and that's a very risky route. Uh, oftentimes, you know, when you when you, 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 you're infatuated, you're in love with the person, whatever, whatever. They're not a believer. Well, we'll find a way. We'll find a way. Um, it, it can work, Dennis. I'm not saying it can't. I'm just saying there's, there's many, many risks. That whole idea is, is fraught with many risks and many potential problems. Most of the time, what happens in cases like that is the believer begins to compromise their, their beliefs in order to win the hand of the person who they're, they're courting. So that's why I say the will of God is really simple. It's not about the looks. It's not about the intelligence. It's not about the social, economic background. It's not about the ethnicity. It's not about the color of their skin. What does the person believe? If you've got a like faith system, your marriage can make it. If you've got one who's worshiping This God and one who's worshiping that God, you're going to have problems. This is what we see in the Old Testament. This is what we see in the New Testament. Marry a believer. Uh, Number two, please prioritize a healthy marriage. Like The the statistics on divorce in the church versus the non-church are almost the same. Uh, They're not exactly the same, but they're almost the same. And, and a lot of times this is because couples don't enter into marriage with any kind of skills whatsoever. They don't, they didn't have any kind of counseling or anything before the marriage at all. They don't know. They just say, well, we love each other. We're going to get married. Okay. Good luck with that one. All right? you, you, you're, you're in for a rough ride if you don't learn some skills and you don't learn how to make it work when times get tough. Okay. Is my wife in the room? She's not in the room? Okay. You need to talk to my wife, okay? Those of you, especially the ladies, and she'll tell you about difficulty, okay? Uh, yeah, we're a ministry couple and all that, but let me tell you the amount of skills that I have had to learn over the years. Just, just telling you. The number of skills and the number of blunders and the, the amount of like unacceptable behavior that I had to learn skills to make my marriage work. We'll be married 25 years as of next December. Okay, I was 10, she was 12 when when we got married. Okay, um, but you, you go and you talk to her. You know, some of you young couples, you need to talk to some of the old timers in here who've been married a little bit, and they know they know uh, you know they can help you. <laughs> with some of the things uh, that you may be experiencing. you got to prioritize a healthy marriage. Uh, divorce shouldn't even be a word in your vocabulary when things get difficult. You've you, you got to fight for that marriage sometimes. you got to struggle to make that marriage work. You can't bail out on it. You've you got to fight for it to make it healthy. And this is kind of what God is saying, albeit in that, in that time uh, and in that context. All right, uh, next, uh, next uh, uh, complaint, God, how have we wearied you? Because God says, uh, you have wearied me right after. Uh, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? And he says this, all, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? And God says, you're tiring me out with that complaint. You're tiring me out. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. Man, that is a serious charge. You know, it's like saying, look at this this murderer, this person, this corrupt person, this liar, deceiver, cheater, whatever. In God's eyes, they're good. Wow, that's a serious, serious charge. And God says, you know, you're tiring me out with this complaint. And then he goes into um, uh, a description here of the future. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This passage is quoted in the Gospels with reference to John the Baptist. He is the messenger who will prepare the way before me. The me is really God in the flesh, Jesus. Uh, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So don't, don't tire me out with your complaint about me saying that the evil are good. Uh, don't you remember <laughs> that, that I am coming? Uh, and, and this is, again, 400 years before Jesus is born. He's predicting uh, the messenger of Jesus, uh, interpreted by the gospel writers as being John the Baptist. And he's saying, look, the Lord is coming, and he is coming to his temple. Is he talking about the time of Jesus? Is he talking about the second coming there? Hard to say. But who can endure the day of his coming? Uh, Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He's going to clean everything up. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And and it speaks of this powerful coming of God himself. And what what he's saying here to these people is, you better realize that you don't serve me for what you can get. You're you're expecting because the temple's been rebuilt and the walls have been rebuilt. You're expecting me to come and you're expecting me to destroy evil. Now you want it your way, uh, and you you say, well, this fruit is fruitless to serve God because God seems to like evil people. They're the ones who are doing well in life. Where is he? He's not coming. There's no. We've rebuilt the temple. We've rebuilt the walls. So what? Nothing's changed. And, and God is saying, you're getting me tired with this complaint. Remember that I am coming. And remember, we don't serve God for what we can get. Yeah, God gives us things. But if you serve God just for what you can get, the day that he doesn't give you what you want, what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, God doesn't work. <laughs> I'll try something else, right? You don't serve God so I can get stuff. You, you serve God because he makes dead things live. He, he, he forgives the unforgivable. You know, that's why we serve God, because he, he's in the transforming business. It's not because we can get stuff from God. Are you still with me? Man, the kids are so, behaving so well. Some of them have left already, but, but the ones who are remaining have behaved so well. So God continues. We're almost done. And in this one you've heard before, those of you who've been in church for any length of time, God, how have we robbed you? Chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me, he says. But you ask, how do we rob you? And God says, in tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see that I will not open the floodgates of heaven, and you'll have so much blessing, you won't even have room for it, you know, and the, the, I'll prevent the pests from devouring your crops, and the vines uh, in your fields will, will, will not cast their fruit. Uh, I, I'll change all of that, and, and I'm going to bless you so much if you do that, and of course, you know, if we're in church, we're like, Oh, here we go. We all feel guilty because here comes the guilt passage about the tithe thing. And now they're going to ask for money and all of this. I'm out of here. Okay, I I know exactly what people in, in the seat think about this. You know, we start coming to church and now we're supposed to give a tenth. Like that's what a tithe means. It means a tenth. We're supposed to give a tenth to the church Excuse me, but I'm just trying to make minimum payments on my credit card. I'm just trying to get my kids to school without going bankrupt. And now I'm supposed to give 10% to the church? How is that possible? You see, and and then we, we feel guilty when we read a passage like this. All right. So remember, the temple's just been rebuilt. That tithe that they were supposed to give was supposed to go to the temple and the maintenance of the temple. So what God is saying is, you know, you neglect this. Do you, do you think that, that it, it's, it falls out of the sky? Like you have to take care of this place of worship and all of that. This is back in that time, back in that day. Okay? I do not believe that this is a temple. Okay? This is just a black box that we're in right now. It's a movie theater. You know who I believe the temple is? You all who are sitting in the seats. The, the Bible says you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this, this can't be taken to say, okay, uh, you know, so, so we have to, what, take 10%? And it, there's a principle that's being laid out here. And this is the principle because people always ask. They say, listen, we know that it costs money. It has to cost money to run your, you know, your church and whatever you do. It has to cost money. And, you know, we want to serve God. And uh, so how much do we give? This is always the question that people ask. How much should I give, Pastor. Should I give whatever I feel like? Because I feel like giving two, two bucks whenever the thing comes by. Thank you very much. Like, how much does God require of me? How much am I supposed to give? And this is what I tell people. If you can make it to a tithe, if you can reach a tithe, I'm telling you, you're, you've gone somewhere. Most people, and this is going to blow your socks off when you hear it, most people who go to Bible-believing churches... And these are the statistics and no, there's no real exceptions to this. Most people give about 3% of their income, whatever it may be. Those are the statistics across the board. So if you can make it to a 10th, which, is, which was like the baseline idea in the Old Testament. We see it even before the law is written about the tithes in, in Deuteronomy and Numbers and books like that. We see in Genesis, people are kind of instinctively giving a tenth of whatever they had, livestock and all this to God. If you can make it to a tenth, if everybody in every church actually gave a tenth, I'm telling you, there would be so much transformation in people's lives and communities and families, it would be mind-blowing if people actually gave a 10th, because they're not. So if you can actually make it just to that level, let me tell you, you've really, really achieved something. And what, what I do is I tell people, you know what? That takes a change in the way that you spend money, right? Because, again, well, I need to make those minimum payments on credit cards. I need to pay this debt, this debt, this debt. Like, how, do you, how, do, how does God expect me to even get to that level that they were doing in the Old Testament? And people need to learn to get out of debt and to live in a different way. Uh, you know, the, those, those, those crops that are going bad. You know, he says, um, he says uh, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. You know what those pests are? Compound interest from those credit card companies taking money from you while you're sleeping. That's what they're doing. While you're in bed sleeping, you better wake up because they're taking money from you. Compound interest, the pests devouring everything that you have. And when we learn to get out of debt, then we can learn to give to God. So I I thank God for people if they can even make it to a 10th. When they do that, I mean the power that's, the resources that are available in a church when people actually give a tenth. And if you give more than a tenth, then you're in, you're in offering territory. That means, okay, your, your church can run easily, easily, easily if people give a tenth. Oh, easily. Any church can run when everybody gives a tenth. So what you do is you do an offering. And typically we say, well, no, this is outside of the church. This doesn't run the church. This is for missionaries. This is for stuff where the church isn't really benefiting. They're giving the money away to other people who need it. There's no benefit for the local assembly. That's an offering. Uh, Excuse me, but do you know how many things you can give to in an offering? Like, you know how many billions of dollars it's going to cost the state of Texas to, to rebuild their lives? Hundreds and thousands of homes destroyed? Uh, in Canada, you can give to Samaritan's Purse. That's uh, Franklin Graham's organization there, Billy Graham's son, Samaritan's Purse. Give online, you know. Uh, You want to look for something local? Uh, How about the thousands of people who have crossed the border on foot uh, to, to come into Canada, hoping that maybe they won't get deported to places like Haiti? You know, these people are They've uprooted their whole lives. Give to organizations like Sun Youth and all these places that are trying to help these people who are looking for a shot to establish themselves in a land where, you know, they may actually have a shot at some life, right? There's so many organizations and things that you can do, even if you give to the missionaries that you saw on the screen behind you. That's why we have that hope fund, okay? Okay. Those people, I've been where they are. I've seen what they do. Aaron, you've been there. uh, And we've seen what those people do. Uh, They're literally, literally transforming children's lives. Like some of the people who go through their church and all the the stuff that they do for them, they end up being like doctors and lawyers and teachers. They come out of poverty and squalor where they're literally living in shacks uh, in a ravine in Port-au-Prince. Uh, so <laughs> there's plenty of places where you can give your money uh, when you learn to live off of 90% instead of 100%. But I know how hard it is to get there. So if you reach the baseline of giving, I'll, I'll call it the baseline, uh, then, then you can start to give beyond that. in in an offering, okay? I know it's ouch, I know it's ouch, but I I know how people who sit in churches feel. And this is the the last uh, complaint. Uh, God, what have we said against you? It's a little bit like one of the previous complaints, uh, chapter three, verses 13 uh, to 15. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, well, what have we said against you? And here's what he says. You have said it is futile, useless to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his commandments and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Uh, But now we call the arrogant blessed. Uh, Certainly the evildoers prosper. And even those who challenge God escape. It's a little bit like the previous complaint uh, you know, it's useless to serve God. God calls the evil good. Look at these evil people, this scoundrel who deceived me, who ripped me off, who stole money from me. This person who did this to me, this experience, whatever. And look at how well they're doing in life. And look at me suffering, serving the Lord. boo hoo hoo woe is me, right? And God is upset with this complaint again. And he reminds them again that he is coming again. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. We see that kind of thing in the book of Revelation, actually. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. In other words, God keeps good books. You want all this stuff to happen right away. You want to see justice. You want to see the evil uh, get punished and all this. Well, don't you think God keeps good books and he reminds them again that he is coming again? Uh, Chapter four, surely a day is coming. It will burn like a furnace that speaks of judgment. And he goes on into this image of of power and judgment that is coming. But for you who revere my name, verse two, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and you will leap like calves released from the stall. Uh, remember the law uh, of my servant Moses. And then he concludes it this way. This is the final prophecy of the Old Testament, effectively. Verse 5. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and he will turn the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now, you need to know this um, in, in the Jewish custom at the Passover feast, which happens in the springtime, they actually set a place for Elijah. So they set it, uh, you know, they put a plate out for him and they do it based on this prophecy. And they say, well, we need to be ready because God may send Elijah And then after Elijah, Moschayach is going to come. You know, the Messiah is going to come. And so they set a place for him. And they've missed it because the Elijah, Jesus tells us, has come already in the person of John the Baptist. So this is like a type and a shadow. So if you want to know, did Elijah come back? You know, if you know the Old Testament, Elijah was taken up to to heaven in this whirlwind, this supernatural thing. He didn't die. And so this prophecy, he's going to come back. Well, Jesus says in a manner of speaking, he has in the person of John the Baptist. And this passage is quoted uh, in the gospel record. The point is, Elijah came. Uh, according to Jesus, again, figuratively speaking, in the person of John the Baptist. And so Jesus will come. Like, don't think that Jesus is not coming and that he's sleeping on the job. We're closer to the time of the coming of Jesus than these people were 24, 2,500 years ago. Do you understand what that means? So I try to help people understand that needs to be a part of our thinking again. This idea that Jesus is going to come back. This is something that should be a clear uh, meditation in the mind of the Christian. And we've lost sight of this. And when we do lose sight of it, we start saying things like, well, it's useless to serve God. You know, the evil ones are the ones who prosper. Uh, so these are the lessons <laughs> from, the, from the book of Malachi. Uh, hard as they are. Are, I'm going to do something a little different because we have the kids here. Are there any questions that some of you may have about this? I know we tread on some some sticky ground. You start talking about divorce and tithing. You know, (laughs) you you can offend some people. So I want to be sure that you're all at peace with this. Yes, Luciana. This is a matter of debate, you know. People like to hardline this, and they say the tithe is for the storehouse, you know, and the offering is for something outside. I like that principle, but to but to declare it hard and fast and and um, in a forceful fashion, I don't think the Scripture does this. Uh, when we look into the New Testament, when Paul talks about giving in books like Corinthians his type of, what he has on his mind is more what we would think of as an offering. Um, So I always tell people, listen, you start with a tithe, the idea that a tithe is a 10th, and if you're giving a tithe to a church that you trust they're going to do something correct with the money, then you're on good ground. That's a really good place to start. And if you want to give outside of that church, and that church presumably would be the church where a person is, is giving of their time, their talent, their treasure. That, that's the community of faith that they're being uh, ministered to, uh, that they minister in. Um, and if they want to give beyond that, well, then think of that as an offering. But to, but to play that hard and fast and to be dogmatic about it, the Scripture doesn't do it that way. Uh, but again, people want to know, well, how do I give? And so I tell them, look, this is a good principle to adhere to. Yes, this is when the temple was in context. There's a, there's a definite context to it. But still, it's a good principle. So I tell people, give a tenth to your local assembly. And beyond that, give to whatever. And hopefully, your local assembly has a way for you to do that. You know, Does that make some sense? Very similar, very similar. Alms and offerings, I mean, it's, you're, 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 you're using the same, two different words to describe basically the same thing. Yeah. But again, if only people would just tithe. Like, you wouldn't even have to raise offerings. You just, you'd be you'd have so much money in a local assembly that you'd be able to give it away. Like that literally, statistically speaking, I'm not joking, it's usually around 3% that that people give. And that's how most most faith-based communities run. Yeah. Unless you're a Mormon, I think the Mormons, I think they automatic debit 30%. They take it off your paycheck. Yeah. When you're a Mormon, a baptized Mormon, I think they yank 30%. You know, I often wanna switch, you know, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Imagine that 30%, like that's, whew, my goodness, yeah. A- anybody else, any other questions? This a sticky book, okay? So I just, I want to be clear and teach it properly. Going once, going twice. I'm going to give the worship team a break. Would you stand? And we'll just, we're just going to close in prayer for a minute.